I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everyone. Today's guest is actress, model, author, and businesswoman Brooke Shields, who you know from A Castle for Christmas, Pretty Baby, The Blue Lagoon, Suddenly Susan, and literally a hundred other movies and TV shows. Brooke and I discuss first loves, how not to get mugged, growing up in the public eye, motherhood, how Brooke met her husband, and a lot more. Our unqualified segment is going to be a little different today because I wanted to try something new and see if you like it. Hearing from past callers always makes me happy, so I thought it might be nice for you to hear from them too. So instead of taking calls today, we are going to check in with two callers from last year to find out how they've been, what decisions they've made, and if talking with us was any help at all. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast and sharing your stories. We love hearing from you, so please look for the link in our show notes and reach out. One last thing. The topic of suicide is briefly discussed in this episode. If you or someone you know is thinking of harming themselves, please reach out for help. Call the toll-free 24-hour National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK to connect with a counselor. You can also go to your nearest hospital emergency room or call 911. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Thank you so much for doing our podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm trying to find a way to tell you that I grew up watching you and you were an inspiration. But when I hear things like that, uh-huh. it's just a little reminder. But I don't have any age hangups. I actually have the opposite of the age hangup. You know, I think I'm finally, finally in my own skin. <laughs> I think it's finally like more confident now. And it started in my 40s. That's how I feel. Yeah, I feel like you start to not give a shit the same way. And then you care about the right things and not about the other things, you know. Completely. I'm happier than I've ever been. Brooke, I was listening to your podcast with Willie Geist, and I did not know you were in the hospital for a month after breaking your femur. You know, it was the hardest thing that I think I've ever gone through because I was, I'm used to struggling, going through things, being alone and surviving. And, you know, I've learned to do that at a very young age, but the physicality of being alone in a hospital, you know, I don't like hospitals anyway. I mean, who does? But the fortitude I needed to sort of find to stay positive, you know, and not just want to wither, you know. My son is now nine, Mm. but he was born at 31 weeks. My water broke at 30 weeks. So we went to the hospital and they told me to be prepared for being there at least a month, like with the catheter in and everything. Yeah. They did not want me to get out of bed. And... A week later, I went into labor, but that week was long. 
Yeah, I mean, the only sort of saving grace was when I looked out the window, I was able to like, there were two snowstorms while I was in there. <laughs> and there was something about watching the snow and kind of oh. going, hey, you could be out in that. <laughs> and you're not. <laughs> you know, like, okay, where's the silver lining in this one, you know? And also the problem with that too is that every 15 minutes, there's a new team of people. You know, and the new teams of people doing rounds or new teams of people doing different shifts, you know, and then some do this with the medication, some don't. Some are funny, some are not, some are kind of angry and some are, you know, and you're just like, there's no consistency to it, too, you know, and you don't have time. It's not like you're sitting there doing needlepoint or reading a book every 20 minutes. It's a new syringe or a new something, you know, so I think it definitely makes you but it made me really get clear about what I could control and what I couldn't control. And really focusing on the stuff that I could control, even in that circumstance, and really kind of zeroing in on that. You know, I could control doing PT more than once a day, and I could control them weaning me off the medications, and I could control being able to still laugh at a lot of things. So I think that that definitely helped me stay more buoyant. But God, I was just trying to stay alive and hope that things like the staph infection didn't go to my bones. And, you know, (sighs) but if I had had a baby in my tummy, I mean, that's just fraught in such a different way, you know, and you're just, you're almost not as important as this little being that you're so focused on, you know, that can be really frightening and damaging and difficult. So I'm sorry you had to go through that. (laughs) Thank you. It's true. We are incredibly fortunate. He is healthy and happy and (laughs) nine. Yeah, which is awesome. I'm a better parent for a nine-year-old, I think, than I was for a two-year-old. I had to learn how to be a caretaker as opposed to being taken care of. So I'm still learning. (laughs) It's very expected, I think, of us. It also is rewarding in a way. So it's sort of, you know, there's approval that comes with it too, you know. But I definitely, being in the hospital, I just hated being helpless. This thought of you can't get up the stairs yourself, you know, and you just think I've survived postpartum depression and I can't get up the stairs, you know. So I think that that the caretaking part, I just thrived in the baby part in the baby, like that's the stuff that just made me just feel so wonderful about all of it. And, you know, I don't know why that, I mean, I have teenagers, so I have 15 and 18 and they really get challenging. Girls are something else. (laughs) It's just, it's so hard not to take everything personal. (laughs) Yes, it really is. I remember actually being in labor and thinking, Do not forget this feeling next time if it happens, which it hasn't. And that's okay. We also have two. My husband has two kids who are 15 and 18 as well. Oh, okay. Boys, girls. The boy is 15 and the girl is 18. And they are just awesome. I have the best time with them, you know, when they aren't too busy. Right. There's an added issue with that, too, because you tread a very fine I have an older brother, and I remember when I was growing up, whenever one of us fell into disfavor, the other would suddenly become angelic. Do your kids, do they fall into that pattern? Oh, yes, of course. And they love doing it. 
They love, you know, making the other one look bad and sort of going, I'll help with the dishes, mom. Uh (laughs) And you're like, you don't think that's transparent? (laughs) You think I don't know what you're doing? (laughs) And it's so funny. And they, you know, they play off each other and they, well, and then they also want, will go to you for something. And then you say clearly no. And then they go right around and they work your husband and get it. Yep, that's the piece completely that makes me crazy. Now I start yep. saying, and do not go ask your father because you think you're going to get a different answer. <laughs> I was like, we are going to be on the same page. And then I have to talk to my husband and go, we need to be a united front. <laughs> they can't separate us. <laughs> it's just like getting mugged. Um, that's funny that that's where my brain went. But in New York, <laughs> you know, when you're just about to get mugged, <laughs> what happens is if you're with somebody, people separate you. Like the times that I've, been attacked or attempted. Wait, wait, Brooke, please tell us about this. I was only mugged once years ago, but my husband and I were coming out. We were in the theater district and you know when you get that vibe and you're like, oh, that's something's not right with that group of people, you know? And as we started walking, they started trying to push two of us away from each other. And that's when stuff goes down because then they have you separately. So he can't help you. You can't help the person. And um, and and I don't know why I just thought of that. That's so random. But it's sort of like what kids do. You know, they try to separate the parents so that they can, you know, play one against the other and get exactly what they want. Well, mom said yes. <laughs> totally. My son will ask me for something. And after I say no, he will go to my husband and plead his case. I'm kind of like part of the rehearsal process. <laughs> That's so funny. Now the quote's going to be, Brooke says parenting is like getting mugged. I know. That'll be what they pull <laughs> from this. And then I'll get in trouble for that and get canceled for that. And <laughs> yeah, the clickbait issues have been a surprise to me. I'm more taken by, I think there's such a freedom with podcasts. You know, it's not a segment on something that can vary in time and there's freedom and comfort in that and vulnerability in that. And that I'm learning because I used to, when I was younger, I learned how to speak in sound bites because I had gotten misquoted so many times. Or one time they said, so when you think of Jodie Foster, what do you think about? As a first of all, I'm a huge fan and I'm in awe of her talent. And I said, but when I think of Jodie Foster, I don't say like, what about me? And they cut out the I don't say. And the headline was, when I think of Jodie Foster, I think dot, dot, dot. What about me? And I was like, uh, I don't even know her. And I'm just scrambling going, why would I say that? Why would I would never say that? You know, and it's I got better at it. But the podcast world, I get in trouble. I definitely get in trouble because they pull things out. And then I'm, you know, my publicist is calling me and I'm like, well, it's true. What I said was true. <laughs> they don't manipulate it, but they just take it out. of. Yeah. But it's a different world. I just did Dax Shepherds, and that's what they just took highlights out of or something where they thought were highlights. They were just clickbait, like you said. <laughs> it's crazy. We, you know, we do try to protect our guests as best we can, probably at the expense of publicity. But I want our guests to feel safe. Um, speaking of clickbait, though, How old were you when you first felt like you were in love? That's a hard one because, you know, that heart-wrenching crush you have when you're a little girl? Yes. You know, and you're like 11 
and the boy, you know, asks you to dance. And then you're like, you can't believe that he's asked you to dance. And then you find out that he's asked you to dance just so that he could step on other boys' toes. And he knew you wouldn't say anything because you were sweet. Like that was like, I remember I was like maybe younger than 10, but that was like one of the first times. But I don't think I really ever fell in love until college. My first boyfriend was the first real first love of my life. That's the one when you think you might die when it ends. Mm -hmm. It feels like the right in your life. I think it was the first time I really allowed myself and wanted to really be vulnerable with another person. Because I think that it definitely ached, you know, not being with the person ached and all of that. I think that I was in an unfortunate situation being raised in the public eye and everybody knowing about my virginity and it being a topic. Oh, God. As I was researching you, there was so much content around the Calvin Klein ad and your story with it that you've had to tell over and over again, which I don't know if that's tedious for you or not, but I was thinking about your extraordinary circumstances and what high school must have been like. Did you feel lonely? You know, I'm really good at compartmentalizing. And I threw myself into high school so avariciously, just like I did with college. You know, I was on the cheerleading squad. And, you know, and after you're at school for the first, what, month or something, you're not new news anymore. And if you want to sort of prove to people that you're not a jerk and stuck up and whatever, then you get friends. You know what I mean? I mean, my best friend from high school, and I just saw her yesterday, you know, it's like, Loneliness was not something I felt in high school. I think where my loneliness came, because also kind of remember this, that when I worked and I traveled, my mom always made either my stepsister or a friend come with us. So when we would go to Japan or we'd go to Italy or we'd go wherever for some, you know, fashion something or some movie or whatever, she would make them make the studio or whoever have an extra ticket. So I was traveling the world with like my sister, who we would just laugh all the time, or my best buddy at the time. So there was always this like, you're not going to feel lonely amidst all these adults, you know? So that would have been where I would have felt lonely. I think what made me lonely was my mother's alcoholism. When I think about it, because I like being alone a lot, I savor it, I'm content, you know, eating dinner by myself in a restaurant or lunch, but like, I don't have that problem. But I think that because I always had someone my age with me to sort of commiserate with, I didn't feel like I was the little kid in the sea of adults who wanted something from me. They wanted something from me, obviously, but I would go like, he's got bad breath or so-and-so's got so-and-so and we'd laugh. And it helped. I think it really helped. Yes, it makes so much sense to have like a confidant that's a Mm -hmm. peer, that's someone that you trust as you're going through this massive fame. So I was always surrounded by just kids, you know, and my work was like my sport. That was sort of like a hobby. And if it provided something, like I remember, I was at the Roxy or Wednesdays. There was a place here that had, um, I think the Roxy might be LA, but a roller skating rink in the back of the restaurant. 
and they wanted to throw me a party. And my mom invited the whole class from high school. And they saw at this party sort of how hard the work was for me because I was painting pictures and interviews. I have to do all that stuff because that's why they wanted to throw the party. They didn't really want to throw the party for me. They wanted to throw me a party for themselves, which we know and see all the time. So my friends were like, I had no idea what you did was so hard. I had no idea. Why won't they leave you alone? I'm like, it's all part of the deal. And I looked at them and I watched them have fun. And I was like, then that's good. Like I'm providing them with something. I'm living slightly vicariously through it, but I can find the balance in that. And then I got my time. Like I did what I do. And then we had hung out and had fun. But I always sort of saw, you know, how to relate to people and how to make them comfortable so that then I could be myself. Will you tell us about a heartbreak that you've had and how you moved forward? In love or in just life? It could be with anything. It's your choice. I mean, almost any heartbreak that you have, you know, it's the end of the world until it's not. But my best friend killed himself. And it was the first loss of any kind that I had. I loved him so much. And he was, I don't know, the yin yang or the whatever the, like he was literally, and it wasn't romantic at all, but it was this like brother sister thing that was just so important in my life, you know? And it's interesting because I told Willie that when I first met him, I'm like, I have not met someone since him that I feel immediately like, oh, wow, where have you been? You know, really, and it not romantic. Like, I think that there's something that happens with romance that's drama and physical. And But this was just, this felt like one of the biggest losses I've, you know, ever had to endure, you know? And then you never get the answers. My college boyfriend killed himself as well. And it's never resolved, you know. And everybody needs to have a different narrative for themselves Mm -hmm. to feel that they can survive it, you know. And so you, you hear everybody's narrative and you really can't negate it and say, no, that's not it. I don't believe that. He wouldn't have wanted this or he would have wanted it, whatever. And then you just start speculating because you don't know how to how to interpret it for yourself, you know? And so you find the rhetoric that will fit that for you. You know, I watched his parents and I thought, wow, we are all grieving very differently and need to understand this differently. What gives you hope just in general? I just feel so lucky (laughs) to be alive, A, especially after this trauma, but I'm so hopeful in human nature. Like, I I really think there are good people, you know? And for me, I get hope by looking at my healthy family, you know, that I haven't mm-hmm. totally screwed them up. And I watch them thrive. And I'm hopeful for our future together because I did a good job. Like, we did a good job, you know? But as a mom, the sort of, that mom is such a focal point and such a fraught entity and and comes with so much, you know, that my girls are solid, you know, they're healthy, they're, they're kind, they're funny, they're good to other people, you know, and you just sort of go like, oh, okay, well, that's partially them and then partially nurture. And, you know, it it just, I'm hopeful because I think I did a good job. (laughs) I know you did. I'm totally convinced. Brooke, where's your favorite place in the world? The Bahamas. I just, I love warm. I love beach. I love sand. I totally decompress by the water. Where do you feel anonymous? I feel really pretty anonymous, you know, in the Bahamas, believe it or not. It's like, 
people don't bother me there. Also, you know, weirdly enough in New York, I don't feel totally anonymous, but I don't feel hunted. You know, people in New York, right. like they'll go by you and they'll go, oh, hey, Brooke. Like they know you. Yeah. And then you go, ah, hey, and then you go about your business. But it's not, it's not a frenzy here, you know, and they see you walking around all the place and you can really walk around here and just feel free. I did the cover of Playboy magazine uh-huh. for promotion for the house. Uh-huh. And I was in New York and this construction guy, he said, hey, I bought your Playboy. I want my money back. You weren't naked. <laughs> and I was like, I love this I city. This is rad. I mean, honestly, I've had some of the best exchanges with construction guys on the, oh, Brooke, Brooke, you know, it's all this. And it's like, huh. now it's like, you're still beautiful. I go, for what, a hundred? I go, don't say that to a woman. Huh? I go, what's the matter with you? <laughs> Do you attribute sort of what your mom gave you in terms of protection as sort of what made you, I guess, not spin out with early fame? She was such a force. She was just a lioness, you know what I mean? She just wouldn't let anybody get near me. So it's like, I didn't have a Me Too moment. You know, I was never victimized because you couldn't get to me. And then I was so famous that no one wanted to touch me because there's too much to handle or it's a liability. You can't get away with stuff if someone's really kind of famous. And, you know, the whole idea of sort of this balance of power and, you know, I had power and I didn't have power. She was behind me with the, you know. <laughs> I love the idea that she took you to Studio 54 while you danced. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was drinking and then I was dancing and then I'd go home. You know, it was this bizarre balance that it's taken people so long to want to believe, you know? And it's only in the longevity that I've had that I can sort of say, hey, I wouldn't have made it this far if I had gotten totally obliterated and destroyed at a young age. You know, there was something. And also, I had to keep my wits about me because, A, I could. I didn't have to temper anything because she was always there to defend me, right? So, you know, a lot of the time, I mean, if you're alone, I'm sure people start drinking because it just helps them escape. I didn't need to escape because I had her, you know, and she was the firing squad. So that was the one thing. And then also she drank so excessively that I always felt that I needed to take care of her. You know, I was an only child with my mother, lived predominantly with her, and really just was the caretaker for her. You know, I had to keep her alive. She was my life force, you know? And so I think with that, you tend to, and something in my character said, okay, where's my addiction going to go? I can't do it here because then I won't have my wits about me and then someone will take advantage of me or they'll hurt my mother or something bad will happen. So I'm going to be really organized, really on time, really neat, get straight A's. Like that was my form of like addiction was perfection and perfectionism. And and like control of... Control and high achievements. Achieve, achieve. Just keep achieving because, you know, this business can destroy you and you're going to prove them wrong. You know, and that's just stubbornness on my part from the time I was born. I mean, I do talk about, I was born two months early and, you know, I was like five pounds, I think. And, you know, in that day and age, I mean, in the, in the sixties, you, you, yeah, r- right. That was almost a death sentence, you know? 
And just clearly from that day on, I've probably fought for my life. (laughs) With your college boyfriend when you first fell in love, how did that end? I broke up with him twice. (laughs) Broke up with him, we got back together. And then I had this feeling that I just needed to grow more. You know, I think that I needed to learn more and know more. And it sort of wasn't enough. It was almost, it almost felt childish to me in a way because I had to grow up so much with him. And I was sort of, I was very immature in the relationship. You know, I had a lot to learn and I had a lot to, and I just felt like I needed the space to really try different people. (laughs) And I had images of what I should be dating and I should be, you know, you find yourselves going, oh, I should be dating a movie producer. And then, oh no, I'm going to be dating a rock star. That's what it, you know, as if you can pick, but do you know what I mean? The image of what I, it's ridiculous. It doesn't really have any real bearing on, on the truth. So I think that I got a little claustrophobic. It was almost harder breaking up with someone than having someone break up with you because it's when you have someone break up with you it's all about you and you can just be miserable and everybody comes to you and but you doing it it's like you putting the knife in is just it's the worst I know how did you meet your husband I actually met him when I was I was on Warner Brothers I was at the Warner Brothers lot and I had adopted this dog and wait is this during the suddenly Susan Mm -hmm. days yeah Oh, okay. And I used to go to the gym every day there. And I was really friendly with the guys that ran the gym. They were just these like older, just really sweet guys that had been there for like 40 years, you know, and they were just really kind of great guys. And so I brought this dog in to show to the team that I got a dog and I had adopted this dog. And I just let the dog go because there was no way to get out of the gym. You'd have to come back this way. And so she just wandered around and this guy came back with her. And was like, oh my God, there's this this dog. Is this your dog? And I said, oh, yes, 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 it's my dog. That's a meet cute. Yeah, that is a meet cute. I mean, and on the Warner Brothers lot, like, come on, what's happening? But I was in the process of getting a divorce and no one knew it. So I couldn't say I'm Mm -hmm. getting a divorce and would you like to be a rebound? (laughs) And so I kept saying, my husband, uh, he didn't want this dog. And my husband, and and Chris was like, hey, you know, hey get over yourself. Like, I'm not hitting on you. I was worried about the dog. Like, you know, okay, you're cute maybe, but enough. Like, but was he? He totally um, was. He was totally hitting on you. He wasn't hitting on me as much as, I mean, he's that kind of guy with dogs, but I definitely think there was some like, and then, you know, he's charming and he's funny. And like, he does that all the time. So, but then I was like, (laughs) and then I called a girlfriend and I said, Hey, I've met this great guy. You should go out with him. He seems really normal and funny and nice. And so you got to fly out here and spend the weekend with me. And then you should go out with him. And she was like, oh, well, I'm kind of dating somebody. And I was like, oh, all right. She's like, what's his name? I was like, I don't even know his name. I have no idea who he was. So I didn't think anything of it. And then about two or three months later, I was hosting Christmas in Washington and it's this Christmas show that they do at the Armory. And so I was hosting it and it was him. He was the writer of it. And so I saw him. And did you immediately? No, like- I, I was mad at him when I met him because he never got me the material. I mean, I had everybody called agents, publicists. I was like, hello. Yeah. It's me up there. 
give me the material. I need to highlight and underline and, you know, make my notes and get familiar with it. And, you know, because what if there's no teleprompter and the teleprompter stops or whatever? I was like, I'm a professional and you are a hack. Like, I was like, I was so <laughs> mad that by the time I met him, I was just like, whatever. Thanks. Thanks for the stop. Right. And then it was so funny. And then I was like, damn it. And so I said, right, do you have a girlfriend? And he said, no. And I was like, well, you have to go out with my girlfriend. Because <laughs> I figured she would have broken up with this guy anyway. And we literally did become friends. And then after enough time of being friends, she came out. We all went like hiking. And she was like, he's totally not for me. Like, he's totally for you. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 I can't do that. And I can't, I can't tell him and I can't, you know. And then, you know, I just said, hey, this is what's happening in my life. And so we have to just be friends. I mean, he said, I'd rather, he played it good. He played it really smart. He said, I'd rather be your friend than not be anything in your life. You know, I enjoy being around you. And, and so it was like, oh, he didn't put the pressure on. He didn't, you know, and so it was really much more organic. And then the divorce went through and then a series of other things happened that were bad. And I was like, well, if you can handle this, <laughs> we should probably figure this out because it was like, he just handled it with such even like calm and humor in a weird way, which was great. So, yeah. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, Brooke, will you tell us about your company? Yes. And what that whole experience has been like? The learning curve in starting your own business is extraordinary, <laughs> especially if you don't I have no education in business per se. However, I've probably been a businesswoman since I was born. <laughs> yes. So, you know, the business of whatever. And it's been in the works for a while in my brain, but it definitely started in my 40s because I started really focusing in on what things made me happy and who I was and, and really learning to become confident in myself physically and in every other way. And I few years ago, I was like, I feel sexier now than I ever have. You are. <laughs> Thank you. But I'm owning it differently, you know, and I, I've had my kids and they're grown and I've had businesses. And I, I mean, I've been in different mediums and I've worked forever. I have a healthy marriage. And but now I'm being told that I'm over and it's beyond the actress thing. I mean, that world is sort of permeated by that. But 
even beyond that, it's sort of like you're either in your 20s or you're wearing Depends. It's like they don't market to us, you know, and we're, what, 41 million people, I think, women, 40 to 60. And at this age, we control 80% of the purse strings in the family. And we're the ones that buy the cars in the family. And, you know, and so there's all these pieces that are empowerment pieces. But then when you look out, we're not marketed to, we're overlooked. And I really just said, I need to build a community. I need to build a platform for a community of women over 40 who want to start new chapters in their lives. I want them to be empowered. I want every woman that I know who's over 40 is starting new things. And they are the most difficult, different pivots that you can imagine. And they're all like these fabulous, great women that they help each other and they hold each other up. They're not catty anymore. Right. They're not dramatic. You know, they're they're just like, hey, what's up? Let's fix this. Let's fix this problem. Okay, what is it? What have you got? What do you need? What can I do for you? And I mean, all socioeconomic, not just business women, you know, just everywhere that I go and I meet women who are over 40 and they're fabulous, but they don't know what's next. So I built Beginning is Now, which is what I'm calling a 360 degree well-being brand. And wellness and well-being really are different. I look at wellness as the path to well-being. Wellness is much more about habits and behaviors and physical health, whereas well-being really is about your emotional health, you know, your physical health too, but your emotional and mental actual being. And so this community built so quickly that people were just gravitating towards it saying, I need a community like this. How did you deal with this? I read your book on postpartum, but now my kids are leaving and now I'm an empty nester or, and I find it's a safe community for people. And we now are in the process of looking for angel investors because Up until now, I've supported this and built it at the rate it's growing and at what we see it becoming. Hopefully, it will become a global platform for women over 40. It will. Because you're right, there is a hunger for Mm -hmm. this. And there's white space for it. And now we are moving into purposeful product. You know, we get so many comments and they they say, what do you do for this? And what do you do for that? And and how is this? And why won't you do this line? And why won't you do something like this? And, and, you know, there's, we don't want to just flood any markets with a bunch of anything. We want purpose-driven product. You know, we have to change the narrative. You know, it's not about being ageless. It's about vitality. You know, it's not you hit 40 and you're now crusty and dried up. Like, yes, maybe your ovaries aren't going to procreate for the rest of the world, but there's so much more that you have. So I said to my friend, I was like, I'm beginning now. I'm just beginning is now for me. And he was like, oh, okay, well, then why don't we just do it? So I did it. And then found a CEO and a CFO and like you're talking about things like equity and you've got co- corporate lawyers and and you're like I want to go to the Bahamas it's just like why am I but then you start going into certain pitch meetings and you start really understanding you know it's reading the room you know and it's watching them respond to you first and what they have to do with that you know, they have to have a whole process that they go through because they've lived with you in their mind for some reason or another. There are these like places you have to get to and then you kind of get to this level. 
just so interesting to see the dynamics of all of it, you know, angel investing versus venture capital versus, you know, and all of this stuff is a language that I just have been learning. Will your podcast also be called Beginning Is Now? No, it's going to be separate. We don't have a name for the podcast yet. Well, I am really excited about you building a community. That was why I started Unqualified. I wanted to attempt to build a community. So before we talk about A Castle for Christmas, can I ask you a couple more questions that are a little more general? Let me start with this one. What advice would you give your younger self? Go easy on yourself. You are actually enough. You are. I was so insecure growing up and so you know, always wanted to just, just be like me, like me, like me, like me, like me, you know, and, and I spend a lot of energy in that way. You know, if there's a hundred people in the room and 99 of them love you and one doesn't, you know, zero in on that one person and, you know, and I, and you know what I also would have said, enjoy your sexuality because I was so shut off from the neck down. I was just so, there's an arrested development there. Is that because you were so sexualized in the public eye that you felt very protective? I was very sexualized in the public eye, but then I was the most famous virgin. Then that became the new narrative. And I was raised Catholic. And so there was like, you wait, you just wait, you wait, you wait, you wait, you wait, you wait. Well, you know, I look at my 18 year old, you know, and I, I'm like, oh, thank God she's having her life and it's all happening and there's no shame and there's fear. Yes, but there's no, it's not angst ridden for her. There's something beautiful about all of it. And I, I think, oh my God, poor Brooke, you know, you didn't have that. You had so many outside voices, you know, that you didn't, you never really felt free. I would have said, it's not going to kill you. (laughs) Yeah. I wish there was sort of a better way to frame this question because I think that when you get to a certain age, you look at regret as the idea of it's kind of given you something. Do you linger on any decisions, career-wise or love-wise, from your past that gives you pause, I guess? I have really worked hard at not having regrets because there's absolutely nothing you can do with it. Do you know what I mean? Like you can't totally except stress yourself out and make yourself feel bad, you know? So I, I think I would regret being unkind to somebody, but I just never was. Like, I, I think that it just feels like a dead end to me. And obviously hindsight, you know, every disappointment career-wise or anything-wise did really lead me to here. And so I feel I wouldn't trade the people in my life for anything and I wouldn't trade what I've built. And so I think that, I mean, maybe I regret not playing the piano, (laughs) you know? Well, I was going to ask you, do you have like a skill or like a talent if you could like take a vitamin and suddenly have an ability? Absolutely be piano. Just to play a musical instrument. Like I always had that on a list and then speaking French was a list and the piano part I never, I hated my teacher. So I didn't want to practice. And listen, I've got hands that are like mitts. They're like built for piano. There's like, I don't know how many scales I could probably get in there, but, or chords or whatever you call them. But I regret that. I regret that. But as far as real big life things, even the hard stuff, I don't let myself go there because it's a rabbit hole. I agree. I get pretty anxious just in general being on set. And I'm going to do a film in February. And it's the first time that I'll have done a film 
you know, for a while. And I'm like imagining myself walking to set and like standing on my mark and feeling like I'm kind of spinning out just a little bit. But will you tell us about A Castle for Christmas? And did you have like that same like, oh God, I'm here on set again? To me, (laughs) being on set is the best thing in the world. I can't even tell you how much I love being on set. I love everything about it. I love every inside joke. It's like a shot of adrenaline. And so I love it so much. I couldn't wait to get to Scotland. I couldn't wait to go do this movie. I play an author, a celebrated author who angers her fans by killing off a main character in her books. And she unravels in her world and she decides that she's going to go away, get away from everything, go to Scotland and visit this beautiful castle that her dad told her about as he was growing up because he was a son of the caretaker. So he lived on the land and I go there and of course I meet a handsome duke played by Carrie Ellis and you know, and it's a rom-com. And the greatest thing about it was Netflix came to me and this one particular producer said, I'm interested in doing rom-coms and stories where women are empowered and they're over 40. And, you know, this story, she finds love. She's got a daughter, goes off to college. She's a single mom and she's had full career and she's not looking to be saved. And, And I thought, you know what? That's, empowering. I like that. I don't have to play a victim or just the dopey one or just the, you know, or the the angry mother or something. You know what I mean? So it was really just really refreshing and it was beautiful. And Mary Lambert did a great job directing it. And we had this incredible crew and we were in Scotland for two and a half months over COVID in a bubble. Like we were just in our own bubble. Amazing. Brooke, I can't thank you enough. And truly, this has just been wonderful talking with you. Thank you. I hope we get a chance to work together one day. That would be really fun. Me too. I would love that. (laughs) And I'm really looking forward to your podcast as well. And Beginning is Now. Thank you. Sounds just incredible. Congratulations. Thank you so, so much. (laughs) Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. 
Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Now we're going to try something new where we catch up with callers from past episodes and find out how they've been doing since we had them on the podcast. Let me know if you like these check-ins, and we will include them when we can. First up is Jessie, whose dream of competing in the Olympics meant having to leave her home and family. Here's a recap of the conversation April and I had with Jessie from our August 23rd episode with Liz Gillies. So I was a javelin thrower in high school and college, and I went to college down in North Carolina. And I did pretty well, but I gave it up once I graduated and everything. And I stayed in North Carolina for a few years, just working down there I'm from Pennsylvania. Eventually, it just got to the point my whole family's in Pennsylvania, and I just missed them so much. And so I wanted to come home and be with them. So I moved back home to Pennsylvania and I started coaching high school track and field here. And I started throwing with my athletes earlier this year. And when I was throwing, I was like, I can still do this. And so I started throwing far enough to qualify for the Olympic trials this year, which was super awesome. That is so incredible, Jesse. It was really exciting, especially because I haven't thrown in so long. So I started training and a couple weeks in, unfortunately, I tore my elbow like the UCL there. So I had to get elbow surgery, but we're on the mend. And so hopefully next year I'll be good to go. And then the Olympics will be in 2024 again. And so I'm like, I want to go for it, which I think for most people would be a no brainer. But I don't think I can do that well in Pennsylvania for a couple reasons. But it tears my heart up to think if I would have to leave my family again, because I'm lucky enough, I still have all four grandparents. I have a little brother who's about to go through high school. I have a little nephew who's one year old, like everyone's here. And I just got home. And so it's really hard to think about leaving again, mostly because of a fear of what if something happens when I'm gone and that would just wreck me, you know? I really think you should do this. I really think you should take like a year, go out West, train, see what happens. Okay. So you just basically told us everything we need to know for your decision. Okay. This is what I heard. It's an individual sport. You can't pay any attention to everybody else. We're all in the same weather. You have to have a strong mindset. You deserve it. You deserve to do well because you've worked hard. Everything you're telling me is reminding us that you need to be your own person. You are your own individual. It's in who you are as a woman. It's in who you are as an athlete. You're not going into a team sport. So you're trying to make a decision that is very individualistic by saying, how can I do that with my big family? You have to have the strong mindset here to do this because it isn't about everybody else. And if it's raining on you and you're sad, it's raining on them too. But then you're all in the same weather. So sorry, but I'm going to use your words against you. That was that was slightly mind-blowing. I'm not going to lie. Yes, it really was. <laughs> that, was uh, that was really cool. When I made the decision to move to Los Angeles, I said I was going to live there for a year. If I was happy at the end of the year, I will reassess I was going to work as a waitress and try to just kind of scrape by 
and audition and roll the dice. And then after the year was over, when I was still waiting tables, I would then go back to like marketing. (laughs) But it may help like psychologically if you want to think about what terms. It feels like it would be tragic if I told you to stay with your family because I do feel like you want to give this a whirl. It could be the Olympics talking. (laughs) It could be. I love the Olympics too. And Jesse, I will go. I'll be there. It's in Paris. I'll meet you there. Yes. (laughs) So it's been a little over four months since April and I spoke with Jesse, and our producers recently reached out to see how she's been doing and if she's made any decisions. Here's what she had to say. I talked to Anna a couple of months ago and it was about if I should follow my dream to pursue the Olympics in 2024. And what that meant was leaving my family and kind of moving to solely train. Her and April both gave me great advice, you know, saying family's always going to be here. I can see them, but this is an opportunity that doesn't come along that often into too many people. So really just if I can, I should go for it. And I really appreciated their advice. It was really helpful. My arm is healing. It's going a little slower than I would like. So I'm waiting to see where that is. Cause originally when I spoke with them, I wanted to hopefully move next summer As of right now, though, the arm's going a little slower, as I said, but we're still on track to fully recover. The timeline might be pushed back a little bit, which is okay. I'm just taking it day by day. My family, they've just been so supportive and they want me to pursue my dreams. (laughs) I think they just want to go to Paris if they can, which would also be great. But, you know, they're telling me if this is something that I really feel like I should do right now, then they'll support me. They'll come see me and they'll cheer me on. Something April said kind of laid heavy on me for a while was just, I explained what it takes to be a javelin thrower. And, you know, it's such an individual thing and you have to go for it. You have to be mentally tough. And she kind of turned it around on me, which was really awesome. And the advice she gave was, you know, just to keep moving forward and be that mentally tough person and be that strong athlete that I can be. And that really stuck out to me. And I actually have listened to, that advice quite a few times since that podcast aired. So it's just hearing that and having that recording has been really helpful. If I could say anything to Anna and April, it's just that both of them together have just been amazing and just so helpful, not only to me, but just to so many people who look forward to their podcast every week, who look forward to the advice that helps in more ways than they can imagine. So I just appreciate them taking the time and everything that everyone who's a part of the podcast does because it's just, it's so helpful to me. And I just know so many others who listen. Thank you, Jesse. All of us at Unqualified hope your recovery is going well. And we look forward to seeing you at the Paris 2024 Summer Olympics. Now we're going to hear from Kelsey, whose unpleasant work environment took a turn for the worse when her promotion led to a jealous coworker's attempted sabotage. Kelsey spoke with Brooke Burke and I back on October 4th, and here is a recap of our conversation. I was put on a project about two years ago, which brought a lot of change to the area I was working in. So I found over the past couple of years, it's made me a really easy target for a lot of frustrations with coworkers and whatnot. So I've had a lot of meetings over the last couple of years that have been really hostile, not necessarily professional, like people talking over each other, people have like slammed doors and stuff. But I've tried to like 
ignore it saying they're just frustrated about work like it's nothing about me it's just work but it kind of changed this year I ended up getting a promotion actually because I had done a good job on this project so after that happened I found things got worse and you wrote that you are younger than your coworkers. I'm the youngest person on my team and there's another woman that also wanted this position as well that's older than me and after I got this promotion I found she's become a lot more hostile. She's kind of iced me out. And I almost feel as though she's holding information from me and waiting until I'm in a meeting with a boss to like throw it at me to kind of throw me off. But again, I'm trying to say it's just work. It's not personal. But recently in a meeting, she actually ended up making it personal by calling me out in front of like 10 people saying everything was better before you showed up. You're the reason for the issues like by name. And at this point, it's like it's been two years. I feel like Nothing's getting better. No one's really doing anything about it. So I just don't know what to do. <laughs> like, who does she think she is? Like, I'm sorry, but it like pisses me off because in a way where I like, I want to protect you. Like it actually, I feel angry right now hearing it. I always feel this way about my listeners. <laughs> no, I do. Like, who does she think she is? So here's what I think. And it's going to be hard because it will take patience on your end and a little bit of self-practice, mm -hmm. which is keep busy, truly take the high road, always be polite, always be like smiling. Don't let them like pin any kind of behavior on you in any way that's retaliatory. The thing is, you've already spoken to your bosses and they have a problem with this scenario because I don't know, firing is so complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would in like six months, ask yourself how much of your day is enjoyable to be at work. Just keep gauging this and just protect yourself. It doesn't sound like yeah. there's a team environment there. I think that sucks. Yeah. I think it's really hard to create that. That's why I was asking about the culture, you know, the temperature of the workplace. Yeah. And if that's not important to the powers to be, then you're in a really tough situation. Like that would be the first yeah. thing that I would do to remove the weakest link or the someone who's not on board as a team. We can only be creative and effective and work together if we are working as a cohesive team. And if there's friction, let's work on that. Let's fix that. If there were mistakes, like we learn from them, we grow from them. I just, for me, it seems like a really unhealthy environment. During that conversation with Kelsey, I debated whether to tell her about a similar experience I once had. I chose not to say anything, but in the days following our call, I found myself regretting that decision. I felt it was pretty easy to dismiss my circumstances as just another crazy Hollywood story. But then I thought about how alone I felt at the time, and I was pretty sure Kelsey could have related. I was working with an actress who I considered a friend when it was discovered that she was making up stories about various members of our cast and selling them to tabloids. I had opened up to her about certain things in my life, and the betrayal really came as a shock. After finding all this out, other cast members would joke that she lacked imagination and could have come up with much better stories. But privately, it was really confusing, and of course it hurt. I could never figure out why she did what she did, but as a result, I dreaded every scene we had together, and it took a lot more effort to smile with the same enthusiasm I once had. Needless to say, I really felt for Kelsey. Here she is to tell us what happened since we spoke. When I was on the podcast, I got two different sets of advice between Brooke and Anna. Anna had the suggestion of just 
being the bigger person, being as nice as you can and reevaluating after a few months at this position to see if it's worth sticking out basically, which I thought was really, really good advice. And Brooke had a bit of a different perspective where she thought I should deal with it a little more head on, meet with leadership and whatnot and try to get to the bottom of it and explain that it wasn't even really my problem, which I also agreed with. So that was kind of the advice I got from both of them. After the call, I really took into consideration what both of them said and kind of did a combination of both of their advice. I thought Anna had a really good point in saying that I just need to stop focusing on this other person that was causing me issues because it's not worth the energy, which I did. I just didn't involve myself in it. I did work with the leadership a bit to see if there was anything we could do, but it's pretty superficial where we got to and not much happened. So at that point, I decided to be a little more uh, aggressive about it and said, I'm going to leave. Like This is kind of my last straw. And I finally did end up leaving. I found another job. Once I started looking, I realized that they weren't valuing me as an employee at all. I got a way more senior role than I had had. I got a huge salary increase once I left. So I ended up having really great advice from them. I think the end result was better than I could have even expected. And I think I really did need to leave that company to move on to better things. Just to Brooke and Anna, thank you so much for listening to me. What a great outcome. I love how Kelsey knew her value decided enough was enough and made a change. It was so inspiring to hear this. Thank you, Kelsey. And thank you, dear listeners. Thank you for tuning in each week. Thank you for sharing your experiences. And thank you for building and supporting our community. Please look for the link in our show notes and reach out. See you next Monday. Monday.